All right, turn to John chapter 6, if you would. So, I don't know about you, but I think most of us, if we kind of add up the years in our lives, we have all these different names that people call us, uh, or that we've been referred to as. You probably don't know this. Some of you might. I don't know. My, my name is actually Jack, so I'm known as Jay, uh, but my name is Jack David. I'm named after my dad, um, uh, who's was named after his dad, uh, so I'm the third. My son, Jack Dallas, is a, a fourth, um, but uh, my mom didn't like the name Jack very much, so uh, she liked my dad, as far as I know, but she didn't like the name Jack very much. So uh, really early on, she just called me Jay, and that's what kind of stuck. So through school, I was Jay. I was never Jack. Nobody's ever really uh, called me that before. Uh, my sisters, I had two older sisters, so I'm the youngest of three. Um, one sister's about nine years older than me. The other one's uh, four years older than me. They did not call me Jack or Jay, they, and they still call me this uh, as, as well. They called me Little Fella. So... <clears throat> To them, that's who I am. I'm, I'm the little fella, and uh, I'm 43, but at Christmas, uh, I was called little fella throughout uh, all of our Christmas celebrations. Um, my dad, and I don't know where he got this, but early on, uh, my dad didn't call me Jack either. Um, he didn't fight with my mom over calling me Jay. Uh, I think really to get on her nerves, he called me stud duck. That's what he referred to me as. Uh, if I think about all the things that he called me, some of them I can't repeat, but predominantly he referred to me as Stud Duck. When I was uh, in sixth grade, it was my second year to play football, and I loved my sixth grade football coach, um, but he never called me by my name. I had a practice jersey and a game jersey. Uh, I was number 34, and I think I might have been the only kid on the team whose practice jersey matched his game jersey. And so he called me 34 all season long. He just called me 34. I don't think he ever called me by my name. In fact, he had a nickname for every player on the team, all 40 or 50 of us. Uh, he had a nickname for us, and mine was 34, and that's what he called me. And, and even later on in, in, in junior high, high school, uh, I'd see Coach Reed, and, and he would call me 34. So that was a, a fun name. My friends, as I got in, into... Uh, to high school and into college, my closest friends, and I have no idea how this came about, but they would call me J-Bob. Um, and J-Bob then had all these different iterations. Some would call me just Bob, or, or sometimes it would be Bobby, or, or Bobaloo, or, or all kinds of different ways. However you could say uh, Bob, uh, they would all refer to me as, as some, some version of, of, of that name. And again, I, Robert, Bob, the, those names are not in my family history, but somewhere along the way it stuck. So now, though, uh, I, I'm dad to a few kids. I'm babe to a wife. Sometimes I'm pastor around here. Uh, all these names, um, whether I like them or not, are meaningful to me. Um, they all say something about me. They say something different about who I am or, or what I am. And I think you can learn about me by sort of hearing uh, these different names. So I say that to sort of get into... Uh, this study in, in John's gospel uh, that we're about to undertake. We're going to do seven weeks on the I am statements of Jesus Christ. And all of these I am statements tell us something uh, about who Jesus is and uh, how he wants to be known. 
Um, you may know that El, E-L, is the widest Hebrew name for God. So, so big G and, and little g versions of God could, could sort of take reference with this word El. Uh, but El is actually more of an identifier or a label than it is a name for God. Uh, the, the plural form of El is Elohim. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, and though being the plural form of El, it is also considered to be a singular noun, so kind of an interesting fact about the word Elohim. Um, and it's the most frequent designation for God in the Bible. It is used 2,500 times in the Old Testament. Uh, so when you see the word God in the English Bible, it's almost exclusively a translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. Uh, but that too, that is not really a name. Elohim is a designation or a identifier of a being who is God, but, but there's nothing personal to the, to the title Elohim. Uh, it could speak to uh, his creative action or his might, um, but it's not really a name. What comes next is referred to as the Tetragrammaton, the Tetragrammaton. And in the Latin alf- alphabet that we use for English, the Tetragrammaton is represented by the letters Y-H-W-H. It's the word that we often use or say as Yahweh. Uh, but it was too sacred a name for any Hebrew to say, and for some, they wouldn't even write it. Uh, and so they replaced the Tetragrammaton with the name Adonai for reading purposes. Adonai, which eventually morphed into the name Jehovah, which that's not even a Hebrew word. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a, an amalgam of the different names of God because there's not vowels in the Hebrew language. And so they've imported some vowels into Yahweh to create this Uh, term Jehovah, and that was eventually translated into the Greek word kurios when the Septuagint was written. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, and kurios is translated into English as our word Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your English Bible, Lord. And Lord, to the English-speaking person, it can be considered God's covenant name. This is how he discloses himself to those he is in relationship with. This is what you get with Moses in Exodus chapter 6. Chapter 6, God introduces himself as Lord. All right, Exodus 6, verses 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself uh, known to them. So God, through the the narrative arc of Scripture, is progressively revealing more and more about himself that revelation would culminate in the person of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. But here, he tells something to Moses that he's never said before. He tells Moses his name, the Lord. And God likes his name. In fact, you find the phrase, I am the Lord, 160 times in the Pentateuch alone. So the first five books of the Bible contain the phrase, I am the Lord, 160 times. And since the Lord is derived from the verb to be, God tended to pair it with that phrase, I am, or even exclusively use that phrase, I am, in reference to himself. So at the burning bush, he appeared to Moses, and he referred to himself as, I am who I am which is powerful in its meaning because the name essentially says, I am who was, I am who is, 
and I am who is to come. There's a lot wrapped up in that name. I am past, I am present, I am future. I am never not, I will always be. This is a thoroughly unique designation. R.C. Sproul used to, he used to refer to this as the isness of God. God simply is. I am. And so, how should we interpret the Lord's fondness for referring to himself as the I am? What does he want to convey to us with this present tense personal name? I think there are many things, obviously. Let me just give you several as we get into this study. This is still by means of introduction. I am means that God is self-existent. Self-existent. Again, this is the Lord's isness. He is not dependent. Nothing, uh, he, he needs nothing else outside of himself to exist. He is not created. He is creator. And he is entirely self-reliant, self-fulfilled, self-sufficient. He does not need the universe to be, but the universe is entirely dependent upon him to be. He's self-existent. I am speaks to his personality. So God is not a force or an idea. He's not some nebulous energy that we tap into like the Jedi or something. He is a being with personality, with personhood, with personal attributes. We have the capacity and need for relationships as human beings, people made in God's image, because God is personal. God is relational. I am speaks to his life. His life, because God is, that means he is alive. And all life flows from him. So Frederick Nietzsche was wrong. God is not dead, and we can't kill him. He is life. He is before all things, and he holds all things together, as Colossians 1.17 would say. It also speaks, I am does, to his immutability. His immutability. That means he's unchanging. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His existence and his essence, they, they do not alter. They do not change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. And then also his reality. I am means that God is real. He, he is not a shadow or a projection. He's real. In fact, he's the ultimate reality. All other forms of reality, they find meaning in him and in, and in his existence. In him we move and live and, and, and have our being, as Paul referenced on Mars Hill. And then there's a necessity to the I am name. So, so life apart from him ceases to be life, both in an experiential sense and even more so in a spiritual sense. He is the one way to life, the one way to abundant living. Knowing who God is and what I am means, there's a necessity in the name. And so these are just some of the ideas wrapped around God's name. The Lord, the, the I am of Scripture explicitly means, I think, at least these things that I've mentioned and then a host of others, if we had time to, to dive into all of it. So when you get to John's gospel, the book starts with a, a fascinating declaration about God. So it starts like Genesis starts, in the beginning. But it changes slightly, and it doesn't say in the beginning God. It says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. 
And with that deeply philosophical shot about the existence of God, the book of John then sets out to explain to the reader that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the, he's the divine word. He's the logos. And he is the one to be believed in. And as you know, the, the, the book of John was the last gospel written. And it does not harmonize its content with the previous three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not a synoptic gospel. It stands alone. It stands by itself. And about 90 or more percent of John is unique to John. So the synoptics covered certain bases about Jesus. John comes to write his, his gospel much later. There's certain indispensable things that, that he, he can't get rid of, that he wants to include in his gospel, but largely he wants to complete the tome of the gospels and make sure to get in there maybe some of the things that the other three failed to include. And if you've ever read John through, you remember that, that the book is almost always landing in the same place. All right, It's telling a lot of different stories and, and communicating a lot of different things, but it's almost always landing in the same place. And where it's landing is in communicating this very important idea, believe that Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's son, believe it. It seems that every, almost every bit of teaching, every passage or, uh, of narrative, every miracle is there to highlight the divine sonship of Jesus. And because of the divine sonship of Jesus, the reader is burdened to believe in Jesus. That's the real thrust of John's gospel. And this is why it's somewhat challenging to preach through the book of John. Because it feels like you're always preaching the same sermon or you're issuing the exact same challenge week after week. And it's a really good challenge, believing in Jesus, but, but framing it differently every time can be, I think, a challenge, a little bit hard. And so this call to belief is, is, uh, is there in John's gospel. It won't go away. And so this is the reason why that, that believers, new believers or unbelievers, they're encouraged to read the book of John. Maybe you've... you've uh, led someone to Christ, and the first charge you gave to them is, hey, read through the book of John, uh, it, it, because it's nailing down our belief in who Jesus is. Somewhere, um, oh, it was late, uh, 2000, no, early 2002, uh, I took a mission trip with a couple of guys to Rome, which seems odd. Why would you go to Rome on a mission trip? That seems like a very Christian place, right? Um, or certainly with the, with the Catholic Church being there, uh, a mission trip to Rome would have some, some interesting uh, angles and challenges. But our mission trip to Rome was actually to, to, to reach Muslim men, sojourners, that were leaving the Middle East en route to someplace else uh, in Europe, what they call the gateway cities, Berlin and Athens and uh, London and Paris and these places where these Middle Eastern populations have been growing over time. Uh, but because Italy has so much coastline, these, these refugees, they would hit the Mediterranean and they would land in Italy. Italy wouldn't harbor refugees, but they'd sort of let them pass through safely as they made their way to other places in Europe. And so a, a mission team with the IMB got this idea that, okay, we need to target these gateway cities and we need to put a team in Rome because we can connect these, uh, these refugees with believers in Christ in these places that they're headed. 
And so in this uh, eight-day mission trip, uh, met men from all over the Muslim world. Um, and at this time in my life, if I saw somebody from the Middle East, I couldn't distinguish what country they were from. But by the end of this trip, I could tell, okay, that guy's Afghani, that guy's Kurdish, that guy's Iraqi, he's Syrian. You can just kind of see it uh, in their complexion and the way that, um, that they look and then even uh, how they talk. But I remember as we're getting to know this group of Afghani men, uh, we're in a park in the shadow of the Coliseum. It was a very surreal scene. We're playing American football with these group of Afghani men who have on sort of these, these robes um, and, and pants underneath. Um, we sit down and we have lunch with them, and then we distribute Gospels of John. And we distribute to, to this to them in Farsi, which is the language that they would speak and read. Now, for them, living in Afghanistan... Um, being ruled by the Taliban, they hadn't even ever read the Quran in Farsi. It was only in Arabic. So we're handing them what we consider to be a holy book in their own language. And what is that book? It's the book of John. It's a book that is outlining this is who Jesus is. He's God's son, not merely a prophet, not merely whatever category your religion puts him in. He's God's son. Believe in him. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these little Gospels of John that we handed out that week to Afghani men and to, 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 to Kurdish refugees and uh, all these others. But the thrust, um, and I can't wait to see what sort of fruit that ministry bore over time, but the thrust was for these men to see who Jesus is. He is God's divine son and he is to be believed in. <clears throat> and as you move into John's gospel, you have this cycle of activity back and forth to Cana. That's kind of how the book starts. He had a miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, another miracle in Cana with the nobleman's son. These miracles sandwich the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, that conversation where he tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And then the first section of the book closes with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. It's outside of the city of Sychar. It's in Samaria. For some reason, Jesus and his disciples are traversing through Samaria, not a traditional route from Galilee to Jerusalem, but that's where they are. And these two, they cover all kinds of ground, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. They talk about thirst, they talk about her past, they talk about worship, and they ultimately arrive at talking about the Messiah. And Jesus closes the conversation by, closing, by disclosing his identity for the very first time in the book of John. We have Jesus disclosing who he is. And what's stunning is he discloses his identity to a sinful Samaritan woman. And he discloses it because she has said this to him. She says in John chapter 4, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And to that, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am. Now, your English Bible likely says, I who speak to you am he. But the he is not even in the original Greek. He literally says to her, I am. And starting there, John will then move into the next section of the book, beginning in chapter 5. And like Matthew, if you remember, Matthew is built around five major discourses, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount. John is arranged around seven I am statements, beginning with the one that we're going to be looking at tonight in John chapter 6. So let's turn there, John 6. I'm going to read this in sections tonight as we move through it. Each section will, will correspond with, with a point in your notes. So let's start with John 6, uh, verses 25 to 31. 
uh, and we'll talk about this first point, a presumptive expectation. So beginning in verse 25 of John 6, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. We'll stop there. So I haven't talked about John chapter 5 yet, and understanding John 5 is the key to understanding what's going on in here in John chapter 6. John 5 contains the first of only two miracles that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in all four Gospels. But in John 5, you have the other miracle that's found in all of the Gospel accounts, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. And I don't have to rehash the details of that story. You've heard it since you were a kid. But Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, and and he gets them from a little boy, uh, and he charges the disciples with dispersing the food amongst 5,000 men, probably 15,000 or so people total. And the text says that his motivation for this is the compassion that he was feeling for the crowd. It's that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he's moved to take care of them. The disciples want to send them away, but Jesus wants to perform this benevolent miracle. And according to John's account, the result of the miracle is that they tried, the crowd did, they tried to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And this results in him breaking away from the 12 disciples. He sends them off on a boat by themselves. And then he comes to them on the Sea of Galilee by walking on the water. And then they end up in Capernaum together the next day. And so that's where we pick up our story in verse 25. In Capernaum, in the synagogue there, the people, they have caught up to Jesus. And perhaps the the press to make him king, maybe that's quieted a bit. But they come to Jesus with some demands. And you you can see that he dodges their first question. The first question is, how did you get here? He has no need for the masses to know that he was moonwalking on the Sea of Galilee. But he gets right into their motives. And in verse 26, we see the first of three truly, truly statements in this section of Scripture. And the summary of this truly, truly statement he makes is, You seek me because I fed you. You think, he's telling them, you think you have one category of need, physical need, your stomach. You have no concern for your spiritual life at all. You know I do miracles. You know I can provide food. This sounds like a great setup for you. The ultimate welfare state with Jesus at the helm. Free food, good health care. And so that's what the draw to Jesus is for most of this Galilean crowd. To them, this looks like the the manna program 2.0, right? The the, the Israelites of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16, as they journey out of slavery, they begin to complain that they don't have enough food. You remember? And, And so Moses talks to God about it. God responds by giving them manna to eat. God gave them food. 
It was this white seed-like bread that God miraculously provided. They gathered it early each day, but they were only, you remember, they were only to gather enough for that day. That's how the Exodus manna program worked. So this mysterious seed-like bread with this one-day expiration date. Six days a week, 40 years, they gathered miraculous bread. It was provided by God, and it sustained them. It's interesting. Kent Hughes points out a fable. He says that there was a fable that the Jews had clung to over the centuries. The fable said that the prophet Jeremiah, at the destruction of the temple, had taken some of the manna and hidden it. And when the Messiah would come, he would provide that manna. And so the the presumptive expectation of the crowd is, you did a great miracle yesterday. It was this, this miraculous multiplication of bread. You did it yesterday. We think you're the Messiah, so we want this bread from heaven every day. We want to be on the food program. But Jesus isn't giving in to their fixation on physical needs. In verses 26 and 27, we see him confront this flesh-driven response, and he continues to, to rise above their thinking, really throughout this whole chapter. He just differentiates himself. He stays above the fray. And so this is why at the end of chapter 6, you just have a few disciples who are even left with Jesus. At the end of chapter 6, the feedback that the crowd gives to Jesus is, these are hard words. That's what they say to him. These are hard words. And Jesus says to that, he says, that's because you don't believe. (laughs) That's why this is hard. And then John records in John 6, verse 66, he says, And many of his disciples went back and walked with Jesus no more. They're like, this is too too much. This is too profound and too difficult. And so they walked away. And this is actually a a couple of years into Jesus' ministry. This isn't the beginning. Even though it's John 6 and we we, we place it sort of at the beginning of his his ministry life, we're, we're a couple of years into to ministry here and people are starting to walk away and that's because Jesus is telling them that their great concern it need not be this life it needs to be the life to come that's the life I've come to bring Jesus said I didn't come to bring life to your muscles by giving them food I came to bring life to your souls by giving you something that's imperishable the food that endures to eternal life Jesus calls it which I should point out, the, the word life is a fixture in John's gospel. It, it's all over the place. It's also a fixture in, in the epistle of 1 John as well. Light and life are there. And there are two ways to speak of life in, in the language of John's gospel in, in, in Greek. You could use a form of the Greek word bios, so that's the, the word for physical life, or you could use a form of the Greek word zoe. And this word zoe is talking about life that transcends the physical. Real life. Abundant life. Eternal life. The Apostle Paul uses this latter word for life in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, when he says that we've been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of zoe, in newness of life. And so John is writing this account, and he has these two words that he can use. And he is just fixated with the word zoe. 
And so in this passage, you have a people who are coming to Jesus. They're looking for bread. They're looking for something physically to meet their physical need. And so you would expect that the word bios is the one that would be used. But what Jesus says is, don't look for food that perishes, but look for the food of Zoe. Not bios, Zoe, the food of eternal life. In other words, you have a hunger that transcends your physical hunger. You have a thirst that transcends your physical thirst. You have a Zoe need that you're trying to fill with a bios kind of solution. And Jesus is saying, I want, to, I want, you, to, I want you to look past that. Look past the physical need. Jesus exposes their real need. He says, look, guys, you're concerned with your stomach. I'm concerned with your heart. You need to be concerned with your heart. But you and I well know that the human tendency is, is to minimize our problem and then to look for a solution to our problem that we can both control and manage. And so maybe it manifests itself like this in your, in, in your own experience. You know, I need life. I have a problem. But my problem is the pressures of life. My problem is the circumstances of life. So I'll find my Zoe. I'll find my... My, my real life in some kind of substance, in, in a bottle or a drug. Or, or maybe my problem is that I need satisfaction. I'm just incessantly dissatisfied. So I'll find my Zoe, I'll find my life in, in the pleasures of life, in the lusts of life, in the flesh of life. <clears throat> or maybe you say, what I really need is I just need more affirmation. So I'll make my Zoe, I'll make it about the opinions of others and the affirmation of others and and the pride of life. And so what Jesus is saying is that whatever you're looking to for life, that's what you're feasting on. That's your meal. That's your drink. That, that's what you're looking, for for sus, or looking to for sustenance. And, and if you find your life in the things that perish, you'll never be filled. Filled. That the high's going to wear off, that the pleasure's fleeting, the compliments fade, and ultimately none of those things will fill you because you, you need a Zoe solution for your Zoe need, not a BIOS solution for your BIOS need. To which they say in verse 28, and this is kind of the way synagogue teaching worked in the first century. You would have a rabbi. In, the synagogue is not the temple. Um, I wouldn't equate it to a local church either, but it, it's a gathering place where teaching happened and there would be interchange and sort of this dialectic style of teaching going on. And so they ask him a question, what must we do to, the, to, what must we do, to do the works of God? How can we earn this imperishable food, this eternal life? Give us the formula. Give us the ethical code. Show us the list of demands to get in on this life. And this is very much like the question from the rich young ruler in, in Matthew 19, verse 16. He says to Jesus, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? I've done all the good things. You need to tell me what else is left. Or you think about the lawyer in Luke chapter 10. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Very common way of thinking for first century Jews. Tell me the religious program that will merit me this imperishable food. How do I earn it? Jesus' answer is verse 29. This is the work of God. So he says, this isn't your work. This is God's work. This is the work of God 
that you believe in him who he sent. There is no formula. There is no code. There is Jesus sent from the Father, and your trust is to be in him. That's where Zoe, that's where life is to be found. To which they begin to ask in very tone-deaf fashion, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? It's like they completely forgot the previous day's events. 15,000 people fed to their full. As if that's not a sign. What, what sign are you going to do so that we may believe? What he had done was ample proof of who he was, but they wanted a new kind of sign. And essentially, I think they just wanted more bread. John Calvin observes this about this passage. He wrote, This wicked question clearly shows the truth of what is said elsewhere. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Let's jump on to the next section of Scripture, and therefore the next point in your notes, a a profound explanation. Pick up in verse 32 here. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a lot in there. This group of verses starts with our our second truly, truly statement in the passage. And it's Jesus taking a step further in the explanation that what God has sent isn't a daily wheat and water mixture that we call bread. He's given true bread. He's given his son, the baby born to Mary, the baby born in Bethlehem, which, by the way, Bethlehem means house of bread, the God-man, he has come to give life to the world. To which they say, sir, give us this bread always. Which means, despite Jesus' attempt to explain the matter to them, they're still thinking in physical, temporal categories. Their primary concern is their immediate felt need. And so Jesus drops the ambiguity in verse 35, and he says it very plainly, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Subject, predicate nominative, I am. Life. I am life. I'm the bread of life. And so the rest of this chapter is Jesus unpacking that statement. I am the bread of life. And this is, this is the turning point for the crowd as we take a look at this whole scene. Because this is the definition of life that really they, they can't accept and they don't want to accept. Jesus comes and says, I have not come to bring bread. I have come to be the bread. 
I have not come to improve your life. I have come to be your life. And with that, they reject his definition of life. I'm the bread of life, which means that he is both the means and the meaning of life. The means by which we live and the meaning of what life is all about. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on to even be more polarizing than that. He says, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus looks at them and says, I'm all you need. I'm all you need. I'm the thing you're looking for. To have me and nothing else is to have everything. And what's that really screaming? Stop asking for bread. <laughs> now, do you ever feel like the sum, to- the sum total of your prayer life is, is asking for the benefits of a relationship to God, but not asking for God himself? I think this is a bit of what Jesus is getting at. Stop asking for physical bread. I'm the bread. And I'll just say this. You know, if, if we're into all of this, whatever all this is, if we're into just the, the benefits of Christianity but not the Christ of Christianity, we become this crowd here standing in front of Jesus. We come to church, we, we give our money, we do religious things, you know, motivated by guilt, motivated by self-righteousness, motivated by emotionalism or friends or family, motivated by sort of Bible Belt culture. We do all that but never long for Jesus, never hunger for him. Never are we just in awe of his person and in need of his presence. If this is us, if we are, if we are in this for the benefits and not for Jesus, then there's going to be a disparity between the public appearance of our relationship with God and the private reality of our relationship with God. We may talk a lot about God, but we don't talk to God. We may talk a lot about God's word, but maybe we don't even read God's word. And it may be easy for us to fool a lot of people, but God's not a fool. He's not to be fooled. And what will happen is that wanting the benefits of Christianity, but not the Christ of Christianity, wanting things from Jesus, but not wanting Jesus, that may change your schedule. It may change your vocabulary to some degree, but it doesn't actually change your heart. Being close to someone will change you. Following Jesus will change you. Being a fan of Jesus, probably not so much. And that's what these questioners in this text largely are. They are, they are fans of Jesus. I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of Russell Westbrook. Most of us are. Some people get infuriated by him. But I love him. I love watching him play. I'll defend his, his style of play and his leadership um, to anybody. But he doesn't change me. I don't know him. I'm not in relationship. My wife has had an effect of change on me, a very positive one. Friends and parents, the elders of this church. There's relationship there. There's proximity there. I'm beyond a fan to those individuals. I'm, I'm known by them. They know me. And that, and that knowledge, that relationship leads to leads to impact, leads to change. But speaking of unchanged hearts, look at verse 36. This is damning. He says, you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
And, look, and then look at how Jesus explains this in the verse that follows, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So unbelief is the, the fault of the heart of man. Man is sinful, man is depraved, his heart is wicked above all things, and he will not come to God. That's unbelief. But belief, seeing the Son and coming to him for who he is, and, to, and coming to him in saving faith, this is a gift of the Father. It's a gift from the Father to that believer, and that believer is a gift from the Father to the Son. You see how that's laid out there? This point is repeated in verse 39 where Jesus says, I will lose none of those the Father has what? Has given me. The Father is giving these gifts to the Son. And if that sounds like a bold declaration there in verse 39, a bold, a bold declaration about the doctrine of election, that's because it absolutely is. And we haven't read this verse yet, but, but jump down to verse 44. A stronger case for the sovereignty of God in, in the salvation of lost people can hardly be made than John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That verb, draws, does not mean woo. It means compels. It, it, in some instances, it means drags. The Father drags sinners to Jesus to believe. But notice that the sinner does have a part to play. The, 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 the sinner is involved. Verse 40 highlights the sinner's responsibility. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. The Father gives to Jesus, uh, give, gives sinners to Jesus to save. He draws them to see the eternal life he has come to bring, and the sinner believes. It's the work of the Father. It's the will of the Father. Now, a lot of people will read this statement this way. They'll, they'll read it and say that it says that all that come to me, the Father will give to me. You see the, the difference there? That, that's what's called semi-Pelagian or what can be referred to as Arminianism. We come, we decide, and then the Father makes us gifts to his Son. But that's not the way Jesus is teaching it here. Jesus says, the ones whom the Father has given to me will come to me, every one of them. And for some, this is extremely hard teaching. It's a, it's a rock of offense. I actually think at the end of the chapter, it's why many of these pseudo-disciples walked away from Jesus. But it puts salvation of men purely in the hands of God. It makes salvation God-centered, not man-centered. It echoes Jonah 2.9 that says salvation is of the Lord, which means it's of the Lord. It's of his doing which isn't a prideful doctrine, it is an overwhelmingly um, convicting and, and humiliating doctrine, humbling doctrine. I read a paragraph from R.C. Sproul, and he writes this. He says, the, in the final analysis, the only reason I am a Christian, and he's referencing this passage here, he says, the only reason I am a Christian is that the Father wants to honor the Son, from all eternity, he determined that the Son's work would not be in vain and that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. Therefore, he determined not just to make salvation possible and then step back and cross his fingers hoping that somebody would take advantage of the ministry of Jesus. No, God the Father, from all eternity, determined to make salvation certain for those whom he had determined to give to his Son. 
This is such a, a dense section of scripture. John 6 is this massive hill to climb. But let's, let's read this final bit. This is what I call prophetic exhortation. And the clock is turned off and I'm almost done, so don't worry. There's usually a little clock right there that tells me what time it is. Verses 41 to 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, who, whose father and mother we knew? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except that any, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will, give, he will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So this is a prophetic exhortation or a patient exhortation. And it starts with the Jews grumbling, which should sound familiar because that is what they did when they were wandering in the wilderness so many thousands of years earlier. They're grumbling again. The identity of Jesus is confounding them. How can he say that he's come down from heaven? He's from Nazareth. He belongs to Mary and Joseph. But then Jesus uses an Old Testament reference, and I think he uses it to subtly point out that if they would have really understood Scripture, they would embrace him. He quotes Isaiah 54. He says, And they all will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then the third truly, truly statement in the passage, Whoever believes has eternal life. Truly, truly, whoever believes has eternal life. There's that big idea of believing in Jesus again. There's that thrust of the book of John. It just won't go away. And then there's also a third declaration of the I am statement. I am the bread of life. So let's just begin to wrap up. Why does Jesus call himself the bread of life? Let me just finish with three reasons, very briefly. It's because bread is substantial and real. Jesus is the bread of life because bread is substantial and real. You eat bread, you break it, you taste it, you smell it. Jesus is a real and substantial Savior. If Jesus is not real to you, you may need to ask if you know him. If that relationship is not a reality, and he's as real to you as the person sitting next to you, then you may not know him. Bread is substantial and real. It's also indispensable. In almost every culture for all time, bread is a staple of life. And try as we may with, with fad diets and with eliminating carbohydrates for, for, for most of history and, and in most every place on planet Earth, it has been hard to conceive of life without bread. It's difficult to conceive of life without Christ. Is that true of your life? Is it difficult to conceive of life without Christ in your life? Is he indispensable in the way in which bread is indispensable? What else does bread suggest? Last thing, a daily partaking. How often do we partake of Christ? I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper, but are we feasting on the word and on his work each and every day? Is it sustaining us? 
in a way that's just very profound and, and, and very real. I love that quote by D.T. Niles there at the end. Just a, a word on evangelism. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's, that's the position we find ourselves in. And as people who have received Christ and as people who are sharing Christ, the bread of life, um, with others. So that's our heading for the next seven weeks, the I Am Statements. Uh, Mark will pick up next week um, with the next one. We're just going to go in chronological order uh, as we move through uh, the book of John. Let's pray together and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this time with these people. Thank you that um, we can find satisfaction for our weary souls in the person and work of Christ. And I pray that as we come in here tonight and maybe we're dissatisfied with different aspects of our life, that we would stop running after the things that will not, will not placate our hunger, will not quench our thirst, but we will look to him. We will look to the bread of life. And we will not seek the, the, the benefits and the blessings that come with, with knowing God, but we would seek him. And in, in seeking him, we would find ourselves full. So thank you for this, this, this time and place. Again, we uh, ask for your grace and, and your presence in our lives as, as we leave here tonight and share you with others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.